You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. second week of a series that we're calling Lent, A Journey with Christ to the Cross. A Journey with Christ to the Cross. Our goal throughout this series is that we will be able to see Jesus more clearly. That we wouldn't, as we, as we see him walk towards the cross, as we look at the days leading up to his crucifixion and his resurrection, that we would, we would know who he is as if we were walking with him. That we would see how he responds to different situations, to different people, and that we would know more clearly how he responds to us. That we would get to know him in a personal way. That we wouldn't just see theology as something that's in a textbook, but that we would know God for who he is as we see him, as he moves toward his death and his crucifixion together. Last week, we talked about Jesus, merciful and mighty. One of the things that we want to do is kind of examine the the paradoxes of Jesus' character and of Jesus' interactions. That we see different ends of him, on, or see different ends of the emotional spectrum for him as he walks through this trying time of him. Today, we'll be entitling the sermon, Jesus Celebrated and Misunderstood. Jesus Celebrated and Misunderstood. We'll be beginning in John chapter 12 today. Again, we'll be beginning in John chapter 12. We'll be getting started at verse 12. This is the verse immediately following where we left off with last week. Last week, we talked about the time when Jesus was at this dinner party for Lazarus, whom he had just raised from the dead. We saw how, how Mary worshiped him after she had seen how merciful and mighty he was. We pick up here in John chapter 12, verse 12, and it says, the next day, so now we're, we're at Sunday, we're at Palm Sunday. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they, took palm, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. There was an Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah that God was going to use to save his people that would come into Jerusalem riding on a colt. His reign, as it was prophesied, was to be so good that it was to give them reason to no longer fear because God was sending them a king. God was sending them a leader that would set them free and grant them victory over their enemies. At this point, Jesus' fame is incredibly high. People are aware of the miracles that he's worked. People are aware that just the day before he had raised Lazarus from the dead. So when Jesus comes in riding on this colt, they break out the palm branches, which was something that symbolized victory over their enemies. They concluded that he was the king that God had promised. Those in Jerusalem for the Passover had been talking to each other. If you remember last week, do you, do you think Jesus is going to even come for the, for the Passover? And the Pharisees at the same time are plotting to arrest him. And he comes in on a cult, just as it was promised that Israel's king would. Let's continue in verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason, this is key, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done 
this sign. So the disciples are a little bit confused, which is pretty common. They're often pretty confused by what's going on. They didn't grasp that he was the Messiah ushering in the kingdom of God to defeat sin and darkness, which means there's probably no chance that the crowd truly understood who Jesus was and what he came to do. If you're familiar with the Gospels, oftentimes the, the crowds of people that followed Jesus thought that this Messiah was coming primarily to free them from the oppression of the Roman Empire that they were under at the time. That's what they anticipated this Messiah, this Savior to do that was going to come and bring this kingdom. They weren't anticipating a Savior that was going to come and bring a kingdom that was going to do away with the kingdom of darkness. They were anticipating a Savior that was going to come and do away with the kingdom of Rome or the empire of Rome. This is what they were expecting Jesus to be, this military leader that would free them from Roman oppression. And it says that the crowds, they were there because they had heard about this miracle that Jesus had done raising Lazarus from the dead. And we see the perspective of the Pharisees in verse 19. These are the religious leaders of Jesus' day. It says, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. If you were with us last week, you might remember that the religious leaders at this time, after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, had decided it's time to kill Jesus. We can't have him going on and growing his following the way that he has Something that I want to do to help all of us have as good of an understanding as we possibly can on what is going on in this specific story and also just in the Gospels in general, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the biographies of Jesus' life. There are about four or five main characters that, that continue to interact with each other throughout the Gospels. The first main character, obviously, is Jesus. He's a prophesied Savior. He's a prophesied King come to usher in God's kingdom. You also have, and the rest will be just collections of people, not just individuals, You also have the disciples. They're learning to follow Jesus. They're not perfect, but in general, they're growing in knowledge of him and they're following him. You also have, who plays a very significant role, the Jewish leaders. These are the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the the priests at that time. They're antagonistic against Jesus. They're against Jesus' fame for the most part, and they don't want others following him. We talked about some reasons for that last week. And there's another character. I'm going to group these together because I think they play a similar role throughout all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You have the crowds. The the groups of people that follow Jesus play a very big role in the narrative of Jesus through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They are a group that is very easily swayed back and forth. They're with Jesus one minute, they're for him, and then the next they'll leave him. They'll marvel at his teachings, but at times they'll be swayed by the Jewish leaders to do him harm, as is what happens right before Jesus is crucified. Jesus works a miracle, and they'll flock to him. Jesus says something harsh and challenging to them. They'll walk away from him. And Jesus' interactions with the crowds is very intriguing. Jesus is not walking around seeking the crowds. Usually, generally speaking, Jesus is walking with his disciples, and the crowds follow him after he does a miracle. If you pay close attention to a lot of the miracles and what happens right after, Jesus oftentimes sends the crowd home. He goes away to somewhere with his disciples. Somebody finds out, hey, now Jesus is over here, and another crowd comes to him once they hear about the miracles that Jesus has worked. There's a very intriguing interaction between the crowds and Jesus. They are very easily swayed. They're not committed to him personally, but they're often around him. The crowds are always around Jesus. Examples of this in 
John chapter 6, I'll read verses 25 through 26. The context is Jesus has just fed the 5,000. He, he has gone over the Sea of Galilee with his disciples to the other side, and then they find out that, that Jesus is now on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. So now the crowds come and follow him there. Let's pick up in verse 25, John chapter 6. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Remember, the crowds that were there when Jesus comes in on the cult, John just told us that they were there because of the miracle that they knew of that Jesus had worked. Now Jesus, they asked Jesus a question, how'd you get here? He gets straight to the point. The only reason you're here is because I gave you food yesterday. Because I gave you this meal, I gave you this bread, and that's the reason that you are here. He's saying, you're not here because of the signs. Now, you have to understand when Jesus uses the word signs, his works, his miracles, and even his teachings are are signs that point to who he is. The thing about a sign is a sign is not meant for you to to focus just on the sign. A sign is meant to point to something else. Jesus' miracles, Jesus' signs point to who he is. Jesus is saying, you're not here because you saw a sign that points to me and leads you to me. You're here because I gave you food yesterday. I worked a miracle and fed you yesterday, and that is why you are here. As I read at the beginning of our service today before we sang, at the end of the book, at the end of, excuse me, the chapter of John chapter 6, many of them walked away from him. He said something that they didn't like, that they couldn't quite understand, and they walked away from him. There's this very large crowd seeking him, and then they walk away at his teachings that they don't like, that they don't fully understand. When he's working miracles for them, they love him. When he's saying things they don't like or can't make sense out of, they leave him. This is the, the crowds are easily influenced. They're easily swayed. So another example in Matthew chapter 13, I'll get it started at verse 1, it says that same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. So Jesus is going outside, sitting by the sea, verse 2, and great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach and he told them many things in parables. So Jesus is just going outside by the beach. He's relaxing. Crowds see him. And as usual, the crowds run up to him, run around him. They're infatuated with Jesus. So he starts teaching them things in parables. One of the parables, I won't read the whole thing, that he taught them was about a man who was sowing and scattering seeds. Some of the seeds fell on different types of ground. There are, there are some most weren't conducive for growth. One specific type of ground was conducive for growth. Some of the seeds fell on bad ground. And then Jesus concludes the parable in verse 9 saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's very important when understanding the crowds. He says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Then the disciples asked Jesus, why are you speaking to them in parables? The disciples are like, hey, when you're you're with us, you explain things more, but when the crowds are, are you speaking to them in parables? Why do you speak to the crowd in parables? Jump down to verse 13. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, their case, indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's hearts has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Remember, Jesus said earlier after the parables, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. 
Jesus is quoting the prophet Isaiah. If you're familiar with Isaiah's call into the ministry of delivering God's word to God's people, God asks, who, who can I send? Who will go for me? Who will go for us? And Isaiah's like, here I am. I'll go. Send me. I'll go. Send me. And the next thing that God says to Isaiah, he's describing the ministry that Isaiah will have. And he says to Isaiah, okay, you're going to continue to preach, but people aren't going to listen. But you need to continue to preach. Their ears are going to get dull. Their hearts are going to get dull. They're going to basically close their eyes. They're going to hear you, but not really understand. They're going to see you, but they're not really going to perceive what exactly you're saying to them. And their hearts will grow dull. It's kind of like maybe, maybe you, were, you were like this growing up. There were certain things that you knew you shouldn't do. And maybe your parent or an older adult or maybe an older family member kept telling you the same thing over and over. You kept hearing the same sermon from them over and over. And after a while, your eyes, you just began to roll your eyes. Your eyes would, would glaze over. After a while, the more they said it, you just got more and more tired of them saying the same thing to you. God told Isaiah that's what his ministry was going to be like. He told Isaiah, you're going to do that until the, my people are exiled out of my land that I have given them. But you keep preaching to them, but they're never going to listen to you. They're going to hear, but they're not really going to understand. They're going to see, but they're not really going to perceive what you are saying. Jesus is saying this is true of the crowds. So he speaks to them in parables because they're not really there to hear him anyway. They're not really there to understand him. They're not really there trying to perceive. Their hearts have grown dull, he's saying. Jesus is saying what Isaiah says is true of the crowds, and that is why he is speaking to them in parables. Now, I'm not saying that every time the term crowds is used, it's referring to the same group of people. But I am saying that there is a pattern throughout the ministry of Jesus that whenever there's a large group of people that's following Jesus, generally speaking, they're swayed back and forth. They're with Jesus sometimes when he's doing something that they like, and sometimes they're not. They walk away from him. Then Jesus goes on to explain the parable of the sower and the seeds to his disciples the disciples are those who really want to know who he is. I want to focus on one specific type of ground that the seed falls on that I think explains the actions of the crowds the best. We'll pick up at verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. Verse 20, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is what I want to pay close attention to. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. And yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Those that are sown on this type of soil, they immediately receive the word of God with joy. There's rejoicing involved when, when they hear it, but there's no root. There's no depth to their, to their faith. They're not really rooted in who he is. So when things get difficult, so when following Jesus gets tough, when walking with Christ is difficult and not easy and maybe even painful, they walk away. Immediately, Jesus says, he falls away. Jesus shows that not everyone that looks like a worshiper and a follower is actually worshiping him. Some have him misunderstood and are easily swayed by him, swayed from him, excuse me, by outside influences. Remember, they received the word with joy. They received it with, with, with celebration. There was joy in their hearts when they received it, but they had no root. So they immediately fall away when following Jesus gets 
difficult. This was true of the crowds throughout Jesus' ministry, and it's very true on Palm Sunday as well. They're, they're hailing him as king, applauding him, affirming him, supporting him. But just a little while later, when Jesus stands before those who are in power, and they ask, is there anyone, and they ask for a reason not to crucify Jesus, and the crowds give no reason. There's no more hailing him as king when he is standing before Pilate and his life is on the line. No one is saying, hail Jesus, he is our king. Instead, in the book of Matthew, it actually says that the Pharisees worked their way into the crowds and influenced them to cry out, crucify him. Maybe they're afraid because they they fear the fate that Jesus is about to receive. Maybe they just aren't there, but what we do know 100% to be true, that the masses of people that celebrate Jesus had him misunderstood. They misunderstand who he actually is. One of the main points that we want to, or one of the main goals we want to accomplish in this series is that we would view Jesus correctly, that we would view him in a way that is balanced, that we would see him as one who came to get rid of sin and every effect of sin on the earth, that that is why he came to earth. And here on Palm Sunday and throughout much of Jesus' ministry, the crowds wanted Jesus primarily to free them from one specific effect of sin on the earth, which is their oppression. This is very important to notice. Jesus comes to get rid of the kingdom of darkness, to get rid of sin, to get rid of all the effects of sin in the earth. They had one specific effect of sin that they were focused in on, that they cared about tremendously, and whether or not they hailed Jesus and worshipped him or walked away from him was dependent on whether or not he saw that specific issue that they were most concerned with. Whether or not he did the thing that they were mostly wanting him to do. That's how they judge Jesus. They think he's about to overthrow Rome. They hail him as king. See, now before this, at times when when Jesus would do miracles, they were following him. They were interested. But now when when they think he's about to go and overthrow Rome, he's the king. They're basically worshiping him with palm branches. Their view of him is not balanced. It's not accurate. Christ, if you're not doing this specific thing that I want you to do, then I don't have need for you. For them, true salvation meant being freed from Rome's oppression, so they didn't see Jesus as the Savior they wanted unless Jesus freed them from that. For us today, we're obviously not as concerned with Rome, but there are many of us today that as long as God gives us maybe the relationship, maybe the money, maybe the success, or whatever it is that we want, Then we'll worship, then we'll sing, then we'll praise, then we'll seek his face, then we'll participate with the body of Christ and in church functions. But also we're a lot like the crowds as well. We can focus so much on whatever specific aspect of suffering from the curse of sin that we're experiencing that if Jesus doesn't do with that what we desire for him to do, then yeah, I'm not not participating as much in church functions because, you know, I'm just going through a lot. Because, you know, I just got a lot going on right now. Me and Jesus aren't on best terms right now because he's not being the type of savior that I thought he should be. He's not freeing me from the thing that I really mostly wanted him to free me from. God, as long as you give me this 
type of relationship that I want and rid me of this, this loneliness, then we'll be good. God, if you give me a good marriage and a peaceful home that I want and rid me of this disappointment I have in my life, then we'll be good. God, if you give me this healing that I desire and rid me of this sickness, then we'll be good. God, if you give me the job, the the success, the achievements that I want and free me from the current situation that I am in, then we'll be good. But if you're not giving me that, then I probably won't seek you in the same way. Then my worship will be different. My, my, My pursuit, my zeal for you will be different. The Jews, the crowds, they were honoring him as king because they thought he was giving them the thing that they wanted the most, which actually wasn't him. They wanted the gift more than they wanted the giver. They wanted from his hand more than they wanted his heart. They were more committed to seeking specific blessings from him than receiving him as the blessing from God sent to us. And the thing that is critical, critical for us to know is it is easy to confuse a member of the crowd that has Jesus misunderstood. It's easy to confuse a crowd member with an actual disciple and an actual follower when Jesus is actually giving you what you want. It's very easy to confuse the two because both are celebrating him, both are grateful to him, both seem to be following him, both seem to be around him all the time. But the thing that actually gives us eyes to be able to see whether or not we are following Jesus from a balanced view of who he is, is when he does not give us the primary thing that we want, the primary thing that we might be seeking him for. Do we continue to follow and worship him, or do we walk away like the crowds do? This is what allows us to see if we actually have a balanced view of Jesus. Or if we have made a savior in our own image and desired him to be who we create him in our minds to be. Loving the gift more than the giver looks like we just love the giver if we've, when we're getting what we want from him. Idolatry can often look like worship of the one true God when Christ has given us what we want from him. And oftentimes it's difficult to tell the difference until we're either one, facing hardship, or two, Jesus is giving us, Jesus isn't giving us the things that we want. Remember Matthew 13, verse 20. Those who fell away initially received the word with joy. They endured for a while, and then when things got difficult, immediately they fell away. And the key to understanding this is if you really want, if what you really want is Jesus. If Jesus is who you really desire, if you really want the giver and not just the gifts, then the difficulty and hardships in your life will actually cause you to run to him and not away from him. If he is who you really desire, if you actually see him for who he actually is, then when things are tough, he's the one you run to. He's the one you're close to. He's the one you believe in. He's the one you have faith in. When we see him as we actually should, suffering actually leads us to him. But we so often, like the crowds, we have Jesus misunderstood. We see him as the one who came to give us bread and not to be the bread of life. We see him as one who came to give us treasure, not to be our treasure. We see him as one who came to give us temporary healing in this life and not to be our eternal, everlasting healing in this life and the next. We see him as the one who came to give us the relationship that we want and not be the relationship that we want. We see him as the one who came, us to, who came to give us the blessing that we want and not be the blessing that came and died and gave himself for us that we 
want and desire. We follow the crowds. The crowds, they celebrated Jesus, even though they misunderstood him. Obviously, celebrating him is good. That isn't wrong. But if we don't do it from a place of understanding who he truly is, sometimes our celebration is actually an act of idolatry because we value his gifts more than we value him. We need a more full understanding of who he is. We need a clearer picture of him, our God and our king. The one who sees Jesus rightly is the one that can worship and seek God while in a season of disappointment. Is one who can feel the disappointment and feel that I'm not getting what I desire, but I can still seek God with zeal and fervor and with passion. The one who sees Jesus rightly is mindful that God is the blessing that we ultimately want, even when he doesn't give us the other blessings that we want. The one who sees Jesus rightly can say, yes, God, I will seek your face. Even when the father says, no, child, not right now. No, child, you cannot have this thing that you desire to have now. We need to begin to see him as he's revealed himself in the scriptures. Because when we see him correctly, we will be able to see that what we really want is the giver and not the gifts. We'll be able to see that he is what is actually good. He is what is actually true and right and what actually satisfies us. And I love how we see that God is truly what we want in Psalm chapter 23 or the 23rd Psalm, I should say. This is David writing about his God. It's so encouraging to me. Psalm 23, verse 1, David writes, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The first point that David makes is that the Lord is enough for him. He is my shepherd. I shall not want. David acknowledges that his deepest desires are met by God, by being with him first and foremost. He is with the good shepherd. The shepherd is one who looks after the sheep and makes sure that the sheep are taken care of. David says, because I have the shepherd, I shall not want. What I have is enough. Verse 2, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He says, on top of that, I know my provider. David says, I know the one who provides for me. I know the shepherd. He leads me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. The green pastures is the place that the sheep will be able to rest at peace, a place that the sheep could eat. And the still waters is the place that the sheep could drink. The still waters and the, and the, and the grass and the pastures that they would rest in is, a, is a, a point of provision. It shows that the shepherd is actually providing for them. David is saying, I know the shepherd. I have him. He provides for me. He is the good shepherd. And verse 3 is probably my favorite verse in the psalm. It says, he restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. That word soul in the Hebrew is the word nefesh. It is the entire being of a person. I think sometimes we misunderstand the word soul. The word soul in the Hebrew is not something that lives inside of us that's disconnected from our body. That's not what the word soul in the Hebrew means. The word soul is the entire being of a person. It's the essence of of who we are. It is all of who we are, that word soul. So when he's saying he restores my soul, he's saying that every aspect of who I am, he restores me. He restores me fully, my whole person. I know some of us in this room have felt what it is to have our whole soul be 
downcast, to be overwhelmed, to be discouraged, to be in despair. Our thoughts at times are discouraged. Our, our, our emotions are discouraged and are at times in despair. Our, our, and our physical condition oftentimes is affected by, by how we're doing emotionally and mentally. Our whole self is affected by, by being downcast. So oftentimes, you've probably seen it sometime before when people are really going through difficult times and maybe even experiencing hopelessness or despair. You can see it physically on them. Their, their soul is in need of restoration. And David says, I know the one who restores my soul. That all of me he can restore. There are many of us in this room who've experienced just that, who've experienced the, the, the despair and, and the hopelessness and continuing to walk with God. You felt that restoration, that he has restored your entire soul. This is what we need. I just don't need a few things, a few gifts that make me feel better. I need someone who can restore my whole soul, my whole being, my mind, my emotions, me physically, that can restore me. This is what we need. We need the giver. We don't just need the gifts. The good news is that as he came and gave us himself. He died on the cross and then got out of the grave so that we can have him, so that we can be with him, so that we can walk with him, so that we can be restored fully, our whole soul, our whole selves. Now we can have joy even in times of difficulty, even in times of, of pain, that we can walk in joy and not be given over to despair and hopelessness. I don't just want the gift from his hand, but I want him. I want to know him, the one who can fully restore me no matter what situation I'm in. The one that can give me joy and hope and peace. I want to be with him. I want to know him. I want to love him. I want to worship him. Continuing on in verse 4, it says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I don't just need a blessing that changes my situation so that I don't feel fear. I need the one that walks with me through the valley of the shadow of death so that I can conquer all fear in my life and walk in victory over fear. I don't just need an adjustment of the situation. I need the one who walks with me with a rod and with a staff and who is all powerful and enables me to have victory over all of my fears no matter the situation. I want him. He is what we need. We don't just need gifts from his hands, but we need him, the giver of the gifts. I want to know the one who was good, who was loving, who was mighty, who was near at all times, that I might fear no evil. Family, don't get me wrong. The gifts are good. Celebrating all the gifts are good. They, they're good, but they're not primary. He is primary. They're good, but they're not ultimate. He is ultimate. They're good, but they're not everything. He is everything. The gifts are good, but they're not life. He is life. It's like what Peter said in John chapter 6. Where else can we go? You have the words of life. We are with you. We want you. If you're giving, working the miracles or if you're not, if you're saying the things we like or if you're not, we want you. We don't want bread from your hand. We want you to be the bread of life in our lives. His gifts are a tremendous blessing, but I want the one who loves us enough to meet every need, to restore our souls, to give us miraculous courage, no matter our situation. I just don't, I don't just want the gifts. I want the giver who gave himself for us, who sacrificed himself for us, who died for us, who shed his blood for us that we might know him. We want him. We want to partake in him and know him. He is what we want. This is what it is to be a follower of Jesus to want him, to follow him, to seek him, to know him, to worship him. 
to help us to continue to follow him and worship him and remember him. It is our weekly practice to partake in communion together. Jesus told us to do this in remembrance of him. He took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body given for you. He took the cup and he passed it to them. He said, this is my blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So we continue to go to the table because we want to remember him. We continue to partake in communion because we want to remember this is what is good. This is what we need. This is why we can know God because he came and gave himself up for us. If you're a follower of Jesus in the room, even if you're not a member of our church, we would love for you to partake in communion right along with us. If you're not a follower of Jesus in the room, the communion table is one of the things that we would not invite you to, but though we would invite you to come to know him, though we would invite you to come to learn of who he is, to know of his love, to know that he can restore your soul. I'll pray for our time and then we'll open up a time of communion together. Father, thank you for giving us you, for giving us yourself, that we can know you, that we can have relationship and fellowship and communion with you, the creator of heavens and earth, the one who knows the the, the number of hairs on our heads, the one who has been with us in all the ups and all the downs, the one who has never abandoned us and will never forsake us. Thank you for giving us yourself because nothing else would have satisfied nothing else would have been good enough you gave us you thank you so much fathers we partake in communion together today help us to remember your goodness help us to desire you more it's in christ's name i pray amen